We're, this is part four of four, but they're independent as well, so they stand alone. Um, if you, and um, let's begin with prayer. Lord God, we thank you for um, your holy word, and we thank you, Lord, for the way you give us insight into who you are and what you're doing in the world and what you've done in our past and in um, bringing about our salvation. And we thank you, Lord, for the future hope that we have in you, the hope um, that comes through trusting in you and the hope that comes through even seeing what you've revealed about the end and hearing about what will happen at the last day. And so, Lord, we again put our trust in you for today, even as we look to the last day, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come into our midst um, right now as we study these last few chapters of Revelation, come into our midst in our daily life as we struggle with the way the world is, with the way our hearts are, with um, the way we wonder about the future, Lord, would you um, transform our own situation um, by a heavenly light from you um, through your holy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. This is, as I was just saying, this is um, my final class that I'm doing on the book of Revelation. And uh, in retrospect, certainly last week we had a shortened class because of a lengthened service. And so it was a little bit hard to get through um, all those chapters. And I think I'd bitten off more than I could chew on trying to get through um, chapters, yes, 6 through 19 in Revelation. That was ambitious. I'll admit it. Um, So this week, we're going to do a little bit of what we missed out on last week when we we didn't really get to the final judgment, which is something not to be missed. (laughs) So... Um, So just a little recap, Um, today's title is Something to Look Forward to, Paradise Promised in Revelation. Um, After last week's bad news, we're going to get to to some good news. Um, Remember, one of the ways to interpret the book of Revelation um, is to see it not as a puzzle book, but as a picture book, a book that um, the way, and to approach it really the way children or young adults will approach a a fantasy book or a fiction book and you look at it and you say wow that's so imaginative so beautiful um, and the thing about revelation is it's true is beautiful and it's true and sometimes it's alarming and scary as we see in um, chapter 6 through 19 so one way to remember well how do we interpret these middle chapters um, through revelation there are so many devices out there so many books out there so many speakers out there um, even so many um, so many radio shows. I remember when I was a student, an acting student at Wheaton College in Illinois, where a lot of Christian publishing happens. Um, some of my friends and I auditioned for the radio program version of the Left Behind series. <laughs> How about that? Yes, I did audition for that. And I didn't get it because I couldn't do as many really unique accents as some of my friends could. Uh, but it was really good pay. You know, if you're a college student and you could get $50 an hour, yes, you take it. So some of my acting friends got the audition and they got in, um, but then they had this dilemma because they didn't agree necessarily with the interpretation of Revelation that they were putting forward. They were well enough, you know, they knew enough about Revelation to say, I don't know that it's going to happen as literally and in such a way as some of the people in those books Seemed, they're, they're, it's a good read, don't get me wrong, and it does help people come into the kingdom, maybe through fear, but whatever means possible, right? But, so they had this uh, ethical dilemma. They, they took the job, and so they're forever immortalized in the radio version of the Left Behind series, but the, I was spared that dilemma. Well, 
looking at these chapters, the question then is how do we interpret when there are so many interpretations out there? Um, one thing to remember is that um, prophecy, I'll go back to that photo, which many of you are, have already heard about. Prophecy, especially here in Revelation, when it's given as it's given here, it is as though we're looking at a mountain range on the horizon and we see different events happening or being foretold and yet we don't exactly know the chronology. So in Revelation, you have a lot of things happening in sequence and then the cycle will repeat and they'll happen in sequence. And so trying to figure out exactly when some of these events are happening um, is, is fruitless until we get to the end. We know what will happen at the end. We know that there's a definite future in God and it's going to end in a certain way that we're going to look at today. But what happens in between trying to figure out, um, for example, is this aspect of human history right now this person that appears in Revelation? Is blank the Antichrist? Is not helpful. Is so and so the beast? Is this particular thing the mark of the beast, the number 666? Is this battle that's happening Armageddon? Those are not helpful questions to ask because there are so many battles that have happened throughout human history that have looked like Armageddon. There are so many um, so many domina- uh, signs of domination of an empire that have looked like the number 666 that to try to keep going and imagining and naming and saying, aha, that's it for sure. That means G- usually the end goal is to say that means Jesus is coming back in T minus 37 days. And the whole point of Revelation is to say, we don't know exactly when Jesus is coming back. 2,000 years ago, he said, behold, I am coming soon. <laughs> um, so we still don't know. Um, but we know um, that we won't know, but there will be signs. It will get worse before it gets better. And that, that's what we talked about last week. So one way to look at these chapters, 6 through 19, is to look, as though, look at them as though they are um, being painted by a painter like my sister, who painted this painting by painting one color at a time, um, and then going back and painting an, another color. So she'll start with, I think she starts with navy blue. She starts with the darker ones, and those are all her shadows. And then she goes back in with the greens or the, um, the lighter, paler co- colors last. And that's what we've seen in these cycles going forward through chapters 6 through 19, um, that it, the Lord is giving visions that repeat and go back um, to depict all of human history between Jesus' first and his second coming. And so I mentioned last week that there are these, um, there's a sevenfold structure in terms of seven cycles of judgment is one way to be able to divide up those chapters even from beginning at um, chapter 6 actually not quite chapter 4 but chapter 6 all the way through chapter 20 there are seven seals there are seven trumpets there are symbolic figures and a harvest combined there followed by seven bowls the judgment of Babylon and then um, two kinds of judgment the white horse judgment which involves a battle and the white throne judgment Okay, talked about all that last week a little bit we talked about two ways of understanding, two more ways of understanding these chapters is to look at them as um, labor pains um, of a woman in labor. And scripture even tells us to look at them this way. Jesus set, uses this image as a way of understanding what the world be lo- will be like at the end. Um, and think about a woman in labor. Um, if you've ever, if you remember when your wife was giving birth, the contractions started to get more regular, right? It seemed as though the pain was increasing as the baby was about to be born. And um, that is something about human history 
it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before Jesus comes back. I also like the image of nesting dolls as a way of understanding these seven cycles of judgment. It's almost as though you get to the last one and there's something on the inside, there's something to really pay attention to. And they almost all end with pointing out um, that Jesus will return, um, that um, there will be a final judgment, um, that all of what's happened on those rims of the... um, of the bowls going into the nesting dolls, those are all preparing for what's to come, for the final judgment. And indeed, when we look at the judgment itself, one thing to remember about it is that the judgment is meant to bring about repentance. All of these terrible, horrible things, the bowls of wrath that are poured out on the earth, and there are um, portents in the sign, or in signs in the heavens, there are earthquakes on earth, there are um, plagues of locusts, there are all sorts of terrible things that happen. But all throughout those chapters, there's this clear clarion call for repentance. Um, for those who have not already put their trust in the Lamb who was slain, there's this call, there's this longing from heaven that those who experience this judgment would repent. And then off, and there's only one part where it says, and now I didn't write this down, so don't ask me where it is. But I remember there's one part where they do, there is some repentance. I believe it's after the two witnesses in chapter 11. Um, but in everywhere else it says, but they wouldn't repent. And they persisted in rebellion, in idolatry, in um, the signs of uh, lack of faith in their being God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Thoughts or questions about that? Does anybody want to... Um, jump in or ask a question from these last couple of weeks um, that we've had where we've kind of been going full tilt. Yeah, please. Yeah, please. Yeah. Until the very end, there there was repentance for for Pharaoh. At the very end, he turned back from and allowed them to go. But there is this sense, and that's very astute. There, there's a sense in which the plagues and the trials in pers- in tribulations in Revelation, um, the specific there are specific allusions to the plagues of Egypt back in Exodus. Yeah, it's very intentional. Revelation itself is wholly dependent on the Old Testament, not just on Exodus, but also on the vision of Daniel, um, on Zechariah, on Zephaniah, on those 12 minor prophets. There are a lot of images that keep coming up. And so John's imagination is already saturated. I like to think that John, the author, knows the Old Testament so well that God is using images that he already knows about from his Bible to speak to him and then to speak to the church who also knows their Bible so well. Thank you for that. That's a great observation. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? See, this is why I need to make more room for questions. Okay. Um, one thing I just thought, I don't think I mentioned about Armageddon last last week, is thought to be this... Um, it's this famous word. Whenever you think about Revelation, you think about 666, you think about Armageddon, you think about the beast, the dragon, um, all of these vivid images. Um, people are still not really sure what this idea is. I think the, the scholars that say that 
Armageddon and this strange word that people are not totally clear on what it means is referring geographically to um, a battlefield where a lot of bad things happened in the ancient world, but also more recently. Um, if it is where we think it is, then it's also where um, Napoleon defeated the Turkish army in 1799, where General Allenby fought. I don't even know who that is in 1917. Whoops. Um, and it re represents, it's a symbolic representation of the climactic convergence of powers of good and evil coming together and fighting. And so we see that in chapter 16 in the sixth bowl of wrath, but we also see it later on repeated again in chapter 19 when we see that Jesus has come back in full glory. Um, and this is what we see. In I'm going to skip ahead from chapter 16 to 19. We talked a little bit last week about Babylon who appears in 17 and 18. And Babylon symbolizes Rome and the Lord... Um, reveals about her, the fall of Rome and the fall of these great and terrible empires of the world. And then um, that sixth cycle of judgment, the white horse judgment, shows specifically the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and I think I gave you a couple of images for this last week that were very vivid to me. I think I've, um, I think someone should prevent me. Maybe Scott needs to prevent me from doing any Google imaging. Um, but this image was one that... Um, I saw as a child in my father's church when he was doing a series on Revelation, and I was probably 10, I remember there's this artist um, named Pat Mavenko Smith, and she does these, I'm not always a fan of some of the artwork that comes out about Revelation, and I'll show you some more about the New Jerusalem, but this one struck me, this one was emblazoned on my imagination as a young child, just thinking about Jesus knowing Jesus and always seeing Jesus in those very tame Bible pictures <laughs> and then seeing this picture of Jesus going to battle against evil with um, with this sword coming from his mouth, which is a strange image, but she does so well with it, with the red robe dipped in blood, with white hair, um, with great power and authority, um, coming to conquer evil. And that's what you see in chapter 19. Um, you see in this passage, um, John sees heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, or following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What an image. There, Jesus is depicted more as the lion of the tribe of Judah than as the lamb who was slain. Both images are used earlier on in Revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but this is a powerful image. Um, and in chapter 19, what you see is that um, the Lord Jesus conquers in this battle where all the forces of evil are arrayed against the heavenly host. And Jesus returns and he leads the, the hosts of heaven in this final battle. 
And at the end of the final battle, what happens is that, um, the, remember me talking about, I talked about the unholy trinity last week, the counterfeit trinity. Um, instead of it being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there's this mockery of the trinity uh, among the forces of evil where the dragon is represent, is uh, an image that um, John sees representing Satan. There's one beast who seems to mimic and mock the Lord Jesus Christ. He was wounded, but he revives. And then all the peoples of the earth worship him. And then there's a third uh, a third person, this um, second beast, who is meant to mimic and mock the Holy Spirit, who draws attention to the worship of the second beast. And I talked about that last week as this sort of diabolical trinity that's counterfeiting the true trinity, the holy trinity. Well, at the end of this battle in chapter 19, the Lord Jesus takes person number two and person number three, those two beasts, and they are thrown into um, into the pit, into the fire um, that doesn't end. And so he's conquered those two, and we're going to see the defeat of the dragon, Satan himself, in a little bit. So um, one thing to say, again, this will happen at the end. We know for sure this will happen at the end, and Revelation shows this very clearly, that this will happen at the end. So that's chapter 19. Then look at chapter 20, what happens. The um, In chapter 20, we have this strange, confusing thousand years. If you've ever heard of premillennialists or amillennialists or postmillennialists, these are Christians um, who have all divided themselves based on how they approach and interpret this specific 1,000 years that's represented in um, in Revelation. Um, have any of you heard of this before? If you've heard of it, yeah. And do you have strong thoughts about it? Some people have very strong thoughts about it. Some people have um, so much so that it that's sort of like, well, I don't know if you're a Christian if you think that other view about it. And so that's okay if you have strong thoughts about it. I don't have strong thoughts about it. I think it's unclear what's going on chronologically at this point. It seems as though this is starting over a little bit in what we're looking at in terms of human history. But let's read it, and then we'll talk more about the different viewpoints. Um, if anybody's sitting close enough to be able to see and would like to read, anybody sitting close enough to be able to see? Yeah, Dan. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand, the key to the bottomless pit, and the great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bind him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. That's great. Thank you. Do you feel up to keeping going on? You then finish it? Great. <laughs> then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ 
and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Confusing, right? What does that thousand years mean? Well, so um, this, um, those who are premillennialists believe that the thousand years follows the second coming, just like it would appear to um, right after ch- with chapter 20 coming right after chapter 19. Um, and so they believe then that Christians, which clearly are all those who had not worshipped the beast, who were maybe not, maybe were not all beheaded for the testimony of Jesus in the word of God, but there's this idea of our names being written in the book of life, which will come about in a little bit. We'll see that later on. Um, but there is this idea that those who are in Christ will rise for a thousand years. Um, and so Christians receive a raised body in the premillennialist viewpoint. Christians receive a raised body at the beginning of this thousand years, even though judgment isn't until after this time. And so it's seen as being an, an add-on to Christian history. If the end of all Christian, or add-on to human history. If the end of all human history comes with the final coming of Jesus and the defeat, the second coming of Jesus and the defeat of all evil, then suddenly then there's this, oh yeah, plus a thousand years added on. Um, amillennialists, or let's look at postmillennialists. We looked at premillennialists. Postmillennialists, believe that this final period of Christian earthly triumph will happen um, following the spread of the gospel in um, 1911 through 21. So they see that um, this um, millennial, they believe this millennial will happen in the future, but that Jesus somehow won't return until after the millennial which also is confusing to me. I'm, I'm, I'm fine on being a millennialist, um, which is, um, this is a picture of the present reign of Christ and the saints in heaven. And so in this viewpoint, the first resurrection that's talked about here, um, this is the first resurrection. That first resurrection is the life of, um, that starts with faith, that new birth in Jesus Christ, that deposit of the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of the eternal life that we'll have when we die. And so essentially in this viewpoint, the thousand years is seen as being um, under, is seen as happening already. This happens for all those who are in Christ Jesus throughout all of human history. And so that thousand is a symbolic number, obviously. Um, so in that, then this first resurrection, that this new life that happens, for those who share um, in Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, who have their faith in him, then over us, the second death, will have no power. Um, and so there's this idea of reigning over all creation on some level. Lots of questions, right? Anybody want to quit, ask a question? It's confusing. Where does it happen? What does it mean? Um, we don't have to have it all figured out in order to put our trust in Jesus, but it is one of those confusing parts of Revelation. Yeah. Um, so according to what you're saying, the three thoughts on this is the, uh, I mean, the first and the second were more literal, and the second was more figurative, I guess. That's exactly right. Yeah. The, yeah, the first and the second, so pre-millennialists and post-millennialists think of a literal thousand right. years, either happening in the future, either before or after Jesus' second coming, or happening in the future after Jesus' second coming. Is that and by the uh, you know, the middle, I guess the uh, the millennial, I guess is, is that what you call it? The uh, the middle, yeah. Just that is a millennialist. A millennialist. Yeah. Millennialist. Gotcha. 
it's hard to say, isn't it? Thank you. It's just is Christianity as a whole. Right. So that two thousand years ago forward. Right. So that middle one would say it's a symbolic thousand years instead of a literal thousand years, and it's actually happening right now. But I'd love to hear from our New Testament scholar in the class and find out what he thinks. Ozzy, can I put you on the spot? (laughs) Darn it! I shouldn't have come. No, yeah, it's, it's a hard text, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. Because with some of the details, you wonder if all it's saying is that we're living in this glorious period yeah. um, of salvation now. Why why the details? Yeah. Um, but that's just the way they wrote apocalyptic literature of this time. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I don't have a strong leaning. Yeah. So I tend to be like you, a millennial. Right. Uh, that is it's just describing in a very powerful way um, the glorious aspect of Christian existence now. Right. right. So well, in other parts it describes a trying aspect of Christian existence Right. being persecuted by the beast. Here it describes the glorious life of the, of Christian, right. the glorious aspect of Christian existence now. Yeah. We're getting to see it a little more optimistically, as you said. This is the glory. This thousand years symbolically shows the glory of what it means to be a Christian on the good days, <laughs> on the days, <laughs> on the days where we're, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Sorry, you look like. No, no. Okay. Yeah, I hope, I hope that's helpful. Um, I think it's very helpful. Thank you. Um, it is confusing, right? Do we look at it literally or do we look at it symbolically? Um, usually with Revelation, if you're not totally sure, what it, uh, going for a symbolic um, an interpretation is usually a, a, sound, a sound bet on that. So there's this confusing millennium, and then what happens after that is that there is, um, there is a final judgment that happens directly after that. Um, This question of the first and second death. Um, The first death is bodily. When I die here on earth and my body is buried. And the first resurrection is spiritual. If we're looking at this thousand years as being symbolic. Remember that first resurrection talked about in it is the new life that we experience in this life as Christians. Well then, the second death is spiritual. That eternal death experienced in the in um, the fire, and the second resurrection is bodily. I feel like I couldn't say that enough, right? It's confusing. The first death is bodily. The first resurrection is spiritual. The second death is spiritual, and the second resurrection is bodily. And so we see this here with the final judgment. Then I and this is uh, Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we see here that at Judgment Day, all will be there. All human beings that have ever lived throughout all of the days of, that have ever 
happened in the universe. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25, where all humanity is likened to sheep and goats. Um, he talks about it in Matthew 13, where, all, where there's this sense of division between wheat and tares. He also goes on in chapter 13 to talk about good and bad fish. These books that are open, Augustine says they are symbolic of divine memory. Isn't that amazing? I love that um, image of it, that these books have recorded with them not only the deeds, but the words and the thoughts and the motives that are packed into our lives that have not gone unrecorded by God. This is a sobering thought. (laughs) This is why when this vision of the final judgment is something that's meant to make us pause, um, to catch our breath, to say, woe is me. Even again, as I think I said in my word in the adventure, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, um, which is Isaiah's word, um, or Peter's word when he sees Jesus' miraculous catch. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Upon this thought that God knows every thought, every motive, every deed that we've ever done, um, this thought seen in Luke chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Um, shows that here um, all men and women, all of us made in the image of God, are accountable not merely to each other, but supremely to our Creator. And at the last day, we'll be held accountable. But (laughs) there is another book that's opened. And that other book that's opened is um, the Book of Life. And there's good news about that book of life. Um, All those who are thrown into the lake of fire, the second death, are not those who have done bad, because all have done bad. Those who are thrown in are those whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. And we'll talk about hell in just... um, Let's talk about hell now. Let's go for it. Um, (laughs) Why not? Um, This idea of hell um, being a lake of fire is such a powerful image. It's such a scary image. It sounds like a bodily image, but remember the second death is spiritual, not bodily. Um, And this idea of hell, um, hell is seen as being outside. When heaven comes down to earth, just in the next chapter, chapter 21, what we find out is that the same idea of hell is outside the gates. And the gates to the heavenly city are open. Um, the chasm, though, is fixed, as we see in Luke 16:26, between heaven and hell. The door is shut, as we see in Matthew 25. The destruction of the disobedient is said to be everlasting. But what does this mean for us as human beings? Um, it means that it's not our deeds that gets us there. It's rejection of, um, of repentance. It's rejection of relying upon a savior and saying, I need a savior. Um, it's those who refuse to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. And so, um, so again, I love C.S. Lewis's talk on this. Sometimes he gets um, accused of being a universalist, and I'd, I'd like to think he's not. I don't think he's a universalist. But C.S. Lewis here is quoting, um, again, if you haven't read The Great Divorce, it's a great book on heaven and hell. Um, and it's a great book where his, his, his theology about hell is really vividly uh, portrayed. If you're an imaginative, visual person like I am, it's a very helpful book. And so in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis says, um, for example, Milton was right. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, 
better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Right? There's this resistance, and those whose names are not written in the book of life, a resistance to humility, repentance, service. Um, there's this idea of I, 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 a worship of the unholy trinity, not the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast, but the I, me, myself, unholy trinity. There's this sense, as he says also in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Yeah. Just to make sure I get it Please. The it toward the end of the second, no soul that seriously and consistently desires joy will ever miss it. Miss joy. Miss, miss joy. That's right, Dan. Yeah, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss joy. Um, this choosing of... Um, of hell in a sense this choosing of uh, not God this choosing my way or the highway instead of thy will be done right this choosing of uh, of ourselves as the center of the universe this is something that we're so bound to in our sin yes our wills are bound as fallen human beings and so it's a sober thing for us to see this and say I see this I see hell in myself I see the sin um, that is so um, so clearly in those who are in hell I see it in myself and yet, what does it mean to be in Christ? So this idea that um, that there is, even though the will has been bound since the fall of humanity with Adam and Eve, um, our, our, we have been redeemed in Christ. And our, our selves are hidden in him. We're hidden in him from the judgment of eternity because um, God looks at us and sees the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. Um, and so this question of free will, do we have this chance? Do those whose wills are bound in sin have this chance to say yes to God? Um, when repentance is presented, when um, the crises of our life bring us to a point where we say, am I a victim of everything that happens around me or am I also complicit in the evil that's found in this world? That's the sobering, sobering question that every single human being has to ask themselves. Um, am I involved in perpetuating some kind of destruction? And the answer is always going to be yes on some level. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Um, for those who cannot say that, to find themselves in heaven where they were perpetually in the presence of God would be pain. It would be unimaginable. In his book on heaven and hell, C.S. Lewis has those in hell take a, a day trip to heaven uh, to see if they want to stay there. And every single one of them finds it too painful. And they can't stay there. They say, no, no, it's too real. I need to go. I need to go back to the comforts 
that I can control. I can't control this. Um, there is, and that's almost, you see it throughout almost every single one of these characters that finds himself or herself in heaven but cannot handle it. Um, so this question of our free will, um, we do have this sense in which the finite human will remains intact, even though we can't choose, again, the bondage of the will refers to our ability not to sin. Um, we cannot not sin after the fall of Adam and Eve. But there's sense in which we do have a choice. Um, we are encompassed, and I, this is what I like to see, is the human, the finite human will is in a sense intact because God will not force himself on us. But we're encompassed by the eternal will of God. Hell is not so much the choosing of evil as the unwillingness to repent. Okay. Thoughts or questions on that? If you believe in Jesus, the 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 um, the deeds mentioned in those other books, the memory of God, are completely wiped out, completely forgotten, because your name is written in the book of life. And so this is sobering for us. We want there to be grace and mercy eternally, um, for but we don't see that necessarily in Scripture. It does appear as though there's a fixed point when judgment will be final, when there's no going back, as though the forks in the road that we've followed have led us to a place where we can't, there's no going back. Um, And that's a sobering thing, and that's um, a troubling thing for us um, who love grace and mercy. And so all the more reason to preach the gospel and to retain our own humility um, in the face of eternal judgment. Any thoughts about that? Any rebuttals? Please. Yeah. Thank you, Kristen. It made me think of when you're talking about the second death, um, the preaching professor, one of the preaching professors at um, Beeson, yeah. Robert Smith, yeah. here. I don't know if this is original to him or if he quote, is quoting someone, but he says, the person who is born only once dies twice, but the person who is born twice dies once. Yeah. It's such an easy way to think about it. Yeah. It just really sticks with you. And it, uh, as you were talking, I, I remembered that quote. Um, That's beautiful. That um, is, is what we find in Revelation. And yeah. your your comment, too, about there's a person, uh, those who are without Christ are already living in hell. Mm-hmm. And those of us in Christ are already, we have a foretaste of heaven mm-hmm. um, because we're in Christ. And mm-hmm. so. Um, it's an interesting thought because we think of heaven and hell as a place that you go to. Yeah. Like you'll get there at the end, in, at but the you're end. not there now. Right. Yeah. But just a reminder: know that in Christ yeah. we have, we are having a taste of heaven mm-hmm. every time we are forgiven of our sins. Yeah. You know that book of life. You know. Um, yeah. Those living without Him, um, living in that personal hell. So thank you. That was very. And I think think even so saying that that heaven and hell has already we're already existing in it in some level that separate and I would even go so far as to say the separation from sin that we experience is like a little taste of hell, isn't it? Painful. Um, just I think about it in our horizontal relationships when there's a conflict in your marriage or a conflict with your parent or someone whom you love, it's hellish, it's painful. That separation is already there. Sin has that painful separation that's, um, that 
whiffs of hell already. And the joys of knowing ourselves to be forgiven and free, to have um, the Holy Spirit empowering us beyond our abilities, to have joy when we wake up for no reason except that because God loves us, those are gifts of heaven that are bestowed before our uh, before our death that are just so sweet. So again, I'm going to repeat for the, for the record, Robert Smith said, um, those who are born twice die once. And those who um, are born once die twice. Oh, that's good. Thank you, Krista. That's great. Um, let's get to he- let's talk about him <laughs> real quick, even though I'm done. Um, so the final word is that for those whose names are written in the book of life, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you've never read the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, I'm so sorry we're not going to get a lot of time for them today. They are the most beautiful. They're part of my, they're probably, I don't think you're supposed to have favorites, but they're maybe my two favorite chapters in all of, um, all of the book of, all of the Bible. Then I saw heaven, a new heaven and a new earth from Revelation 21. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Ah, the end. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're waiting for. This is what we're longing for. I'm going to scroll through some of my Google images from the New Jerusalem while I keep talking. Here we see the universe reborn. Um, heaven and earth, the old heaven and earth destroyed. And our future is not to be disembodied spirits sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. How boring. No, we'll have a body, a new body. And even as Lewis puts it in The Last Battle and the way he imagines a new Narnia, Every, all of the glad places, all of the good things of this earth will be retained. They won't be restored. They'll be retained and made perfect as they were always meant to be. Um, this new heavens and earth, this new universe is related to the old. It's recast through the destruction of fire, as the Lord says in Second Peter um, chapter 3. And in this new heaven and this new earth, there will be um, a new Jerusalem, a heavenly city um, that will come down. And John sees it descend twice. It is perfectly a cube, which is a sign spiritually of the perfection of God's people at the end. The church will be reunited. Um, The church is like a beautiful bride. and, And a shining symbol is another symbol of the church with perfect purity, perfect security, perfect government fellowship with God, and perfect beauty. Um, um, So this new Jerusalem will have um, trees and water in it. Um, It will not need any lamp or light or sun because God himself will be its glory. The glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. All the nations of the earth will bring their glory into it. This says to me that people of all nations who are redeemed, all those whose names are written in the book of life, will bring in the glory of all of those marvelous cultures that exist all throughout the earth. Um, And then this image, this is from that um, same uh, person who 
showed things when I was a child. I love this image, and it's seared again in my childhood imagination. That flowing through the, I know, go if you need to. It's uh, 10.53, but can you tell? I don't have to vest for the next service, so I'm going to go for it. (laughs) Um, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed in it, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We see here that the New Jerusalem is uh, um, the church, but it's also a place where um, there's a restoration of Eden. It is a perfect paradise now within a holy city. The leaves of the trees and the um, water flowing, the water of life, but that tree of life that had been barred from Adam and Eve after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will now be open and available, unguarded for all those who are in Christ Jesus. For all those who have been raised to a new bodily life, now without sin, there will be the joy of living eternally. There will be healing. Um, This is such a beautiful image of the end and of our eternal destiny. that We have to remember this in light of the present. Um, in the light, uh, whenever our lives are tough, we remember this is who I am. This is where I'm headed. Um, God has restored me to um, re- relationship with Him through Christ Jesus, and this is my destiny as a child of God, as a Christian. Okay, let's pray, and I'll let you go. Lord, thank you, thank you for this vision of the end, this place that is um, spiritual as well as physical. This place where you will bring all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, for your blood that takes away our sin, for your life poured out. That means that our life will um, will only be lost once, we'll only die once, and then we will rise with you and we will spend eternity in your presence in a beautiful place, a place far more beautiful than anything we've seen on earth, and yet a place that will be um, perfect, where we will be sinless with you for all eternity. Um, we will rejoice in your presence, and we will worship you, even as we worship you now, then in more glory. And so we give you thanks for this image of the end, this image of the end that will be for certain. Um, and we say, along with um, the, the prophet and apostle John, Come, Lord Jesus, come into our midst even now. Come with the light of your love and your glory. Um, Give us grace to be the creatures you've meant us to be, now restored to fellowship with you. Give us grace to go out and proclaim your good news to the world in need. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.